you have to be able to lead people and they look up to you. And if you're not setting the right example, you know, it's, it's not, it's not do as I, or what, what's that saying? Like, like do, do as, as I, I say, say, not as I do. Right. Yeah. Something like that. You know, a lot of entrepreneurs get caught up in that. And if you can figure out how to temper your ego off the bat, and figure out how to serve your people by asking the right questions, you're going to win. And you're going to win a lot faster. Great experiences build great leaders. Great leaders build great teams. This is Building Great Sales Teams. All right, guys, I got Joshman Yeh today. He's an entrepreneur, speaker, fractional COO, author, and athlete. He's a coach over at Winweight Consulting, host of the Uncommon Element podcast, also has a d- design business called Free Space Studios. Welcome, brother. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Doug. Man, Joshman, we met through Apex, but mm-hmm. I want to say... We probably saw each other in the distance on social media, stuff like that, all the way through until MDM this past year. Mm-hmm. And then finally, yep. like we were we were up in the suites and the the advertiser suites together or whatever. And uh, I think I had seen one of your posts about la- lacrosse. Yep. And then that's where we kind of connected and finally had a, a conversation. I'm like, what what do you actually do? <laughs> you know what I mean? Because, <laughs> you know, I knew you were a coach with win, win rate, you know, and then yep. I had seen your like design plans that you were putting out. So mm-hmm. I was like, man, this guy is doing a little bit of everything. So we mm-hmm. chopped it up for a while, got to know each other. And, and, and since then, it's all kind of made a lot more sense now. And yeah. so, um, what, you know, I want to talk a little bit about why two like grown men feel the need to play these sports. <laughs> <laughs> so you play lacrosse yeah. and you're coming off of uh, an injury from that. So mm-hmm. how is that going? Well, I just had my shoulder replaced uh, at 37 years old. So that's a little bit not normal, you would say. Um, But being an athlete all my life has created a lot of opportunities and a lot of great relationships for me. And really, uh, when I go back to like the mentality building and really confidence building in my own life, uh, it started in athletics. And, you know, I was really fortunate to have mentors that helped me, um, you know, and showed me what coaches were, right, and how you can make an impact on, you know, young kids or or anybody around you by just being somebody as like a sounding board almost Mm -hmm. and give you good advice. So athletics is always something that I will always cherish, but it comes with dues. Right. Right. Like you said, those injuries that I understand that having a career that's lasted as long as mine has, has brought about the debt that I've asked from my body. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm I'm nine surgeries deep, dude. And it's like, you know, at some point I'm like getting tired of (laughs) feeling a little broken uh, at times, but it's also those those periods where that you go through where you have to make adjustments or I've found that I've had to make adjustments from being that high performance athlete and constantly pushing my body to now uh, 
being like, all right, cool. Well, how do I exercise my mind and keep my tranquility that I'm not able to do by, you know, exhausting, exhaust, exhausting myself physically. Right. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's been a switch for me. And at the end of the day, though, I actually count it as a blessing because I'm getting older and I'm starting to listen a little bit more to the lessons that, you know, either God or whoever is out there, you know, pushing and telling me, hey, maybe it's time that you start focusing on some different metrics in your life. Yep. So, now, I know exactly what you mean, man. Rugby, uh, when I found rugby, it was definitely an outlet for me. And so now that I don't get to play as much as I used to, or I'll just play, you know, I still play my dues. I'm still part of the club. You know what I mean? But it's, it's more like they call me when they absolutely need someone because <laughs> they know that <laughs> I'm not going to practice. You know what I mean? And if I can show up to a match, it's, it's cause like something got canceled, you know? <laughs> and right. so that's yeah. how it's been lately. But I have been, I have been missing that physical, like leave it all on the field. That's probably why, I'm running a marathon pretty soon here just to, you know, have more control of those tests, you know what I'm saying? And yeah. I, I think we all, we all hundred percent need that, but you're right at some point, you know, and I don't know what that point is. Cause I see guys play rugby through like their seventies, you know what yeah. I mean? I, I was on the field <laughs> with the guy in his seventies a couple months ago, you know what I mean? It's but unbelievable. You, How many you, times do you think he's come out of retirement? Oh, I can, I can imagine. <laughs> I can imagine. And so, yeah. but you do, you change your, okay. So the, the, there's first on the field, right? You change your, your mindset on the field. Whereas before when you were, you know, probably in college, it was like you used every physical attribute that you had and that's where you excelled. You know what I mean? And now it's like when you're on that field, it's probably all about what's happening up here more than what's happening in in the body because I mean, I, I do the same thing. I know exactly when to rest when I'm playing rugby and exactly when to go all out, you know, whereas when I was younger, it was just like all out all the time until I exhausted myself. Yeah. I think that's, uh, I mean, you made a good point there. The mindset behind being on that field and having that healthy outlet of competition where, you know, physicality, physicality and winning and losing is part of those games. And you have to have a pretty serious attitude about getting on the field because, you know, if you're willing to endure, you know, suffering and pain like that in those types of sports, you know, I think it does say something about people mm -hmm. when they're, drawn more towards those uh like physical sports i'd say like wrestling being one of those you know cross rugby right you know, those sports being um you know really physical sports and having and well really creating kind of that as tim grover says right like that relentless attitude mm -hmm. like that was and you mentioned something here or there that <clears throat> I think when you get older, you start to, yes, slow down. Like you're like, I can't perform when, like I was when I was 21. And I, I, right. ex I had to accept that when I was like 31 and it was hard. <laughs> <laughs> but what I did notice though, is 
having that in my life and being able to have that as an outlet and go a hundred percent on the field. Cause I have one gear mm-hmm. and most people Mark, Mark, my trainer, I mean, you know, Mark Salmanoff, yeah. he, he's told me multiple times. He's like, you're the only person I've ever had to tell to slow down, like slow down. Cause I don't know what it was, but it was, it's always been a part of me. It's like, I have one gear and I'll go hundred miles an hour, but mm-hmm. I'm learning that that, doesn't breed success long term because stuff breaks and and then you get setbacks which is fine as long as you learn from them and you fail forward on it and you know do i consider a shoulder replacement a failure yes in a way because i didn't pay attention to my body probably the way that i should have and not going that 100 percent all the time. And I don't like when I step on across that white line onto that field, like you get all of me. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. And that's kind of how I play in a lot of the way in a lot of the areas of my life, which is why I do a lot of, a, a lot of different things. And I've been able to be successful in certain things, mm-hmm. but I've also failed a shit ton in athletics. Yeah. <laughs> that certainly helps. <laughs> certainly helps you rebound for sure. Well, I can imagine. I mean, you went to, uh, Northeastern University, and Uh um, you were actually a college-level athlete there in lacrosse. Uh, Ended up getting nominated to team captain your junior and senior year, from Uh what I read. And uh, so that's amazing in itself. Thank you. And then coming off of that, you know, graduating and going into the workforce, you know, I I could see why you stayed in this sports you know what i'm saying stayed in lacrosse because you're never mm-hmm. gonna be able to replace that that feeling on that field but at, yeah. at the same time you went immediately after that and went from so you you, you got degrees for entrepreneurship and marketing but you went mm-hmm. right into sales you know and, yep. and did um sales consulting mm-hmm. which is not surprising for me at all because a lot of the greatest like salespeople come from sports or, or college level athletes, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I guess what, what made you make that decision? Was it just a, a natural progression or was that more, did you have a mentor in your life at the time? Like, where did you get that, that decision? No, I, what I, what I did is I looked up percentages of CEOs and where, what their first jobs were. And 75% of CEOs came from sales. Knowing that I wanted to be an entrepreneur at some point in my life, I just wasn't necessarily ready for that. Mm-hmm. It had always been something that had been stuck in my brain since I was 16. Right. And some, some people ask me like, they give you degrees in entrepreneurship. I'm like, yeah, they do. And, and it's actually really smart <laughs> because they teach you how to build businesses and understand numbers and like really just on the back end of things, mm-hmm. manage a business. Right. Um, and what are the really important things to set yourself up for success? Uh, but I chose sales for that reason because I knew that I wanted to be a CEO long-term. I knew that uh, consulting was something that I had been privy to early on in my life. I'd been around a lot of high net worth people um, growing up, you know, I was lucky enough to go to the same high school that Trump's kids went to. Right. Oh, wow. So, okay. Like I'm a private, I'm a prep school kid Yeah. and I'm not ashamed of it because 
those opportunities that came along with that of being around certain people really helped me mm-hmm. um, to develop, you know, an understanding of business and under, understanding of life and and good examples of what, you know, families were. Because I didn't come from what I would call the best example of a family. My, my parents gave me great opportunities, but they weren't, they didn't, they just weren't compatible with each other. Right. Right. Um, but you know, that, that all led me to, you know, asking the right people, the right questions about, Hey, this is where I want to go. Like, I want to be a CEO one day too. You know, what do you guys think? Mm-hmm. And having those mentors as a sounding board really helped too. Cause they said, you know, if you cut your teeth in sales and you you're speaking with executives or you're actually talking about problems and you're learning about, you know, how a business is run, that's what's going to get you so much farther, so much faster, as opposed to trying to work in like say HR or marketing for where, like I said, I wanted to go. So it was really, really beneficial for me to, to become part of EMC right after college because they had the number one sales training program in the world in tech. Mm-hmm. And, and like you said earlier, athletes. Yeah. Everybody yeah. in there was a high performing athlete in college. They were either all Americans, all conference at like, and every, so they wanted to pit all of us against each other. Mm-hmm. Right. So then you get your, then you get your competition that way. Right. Um, and you just see kind of who, who succeeds and who doesn't. And I just, my, my deal was I'll work the fuck out of you. Yeah. Until you're exhausted, and, most, and that's how climb that up, climb that corporate ladder pretty quickly. Yeah, most high performing athletes have that mentality too. I mean, mm-hmm. it's been instilled in them from a young age. Once they realized, hey, I'm I'm a grade above a lot of these guys around me, it's like, okay, well, how am I going to maintain that and expand that? And from high school to college, I mean, that's that's where the dog comes out, right? That's where that mm-hmm. work ethic comes out. I do want to point out something that you said about you know, having that one prep school beginning in high school and then going into college. So it's cliche. And and, and I was guilty of this in my 20s, too, because I was super proud that I never went to college. You know what I'm saying? And, mm-hmm. and probably in my late 20s, yeah. it became a trend, like, you know, skip college, go straight into entrepreneurship and learn, learn the business the hard way, right? Mm-hmm. And somewhere around 5 million, I would say, it's where you hit a ceiling because of your lack of education. Mm-hmm. And uh, what ends up happening there, and and under, understand this, I wouldn't have done it any other way because my, you know, I I, I learned, I learned mental maturity during that mm-hmm. time, mm-hmm. and how to work past the the huge losses and failures that I had. So I I wouldn't do it any other way. But what I understand now is when you get to that certain mark, you're gonna have to do one of two things: you're gonna have to get educated on your own. You know, the the degree is a piece of paper. The education is what actually matters, the knowledge, right? You're going to have to go I'm get sorry. that knowledge and take mm-hmm. the time to get it, or you're going to have to hire someone like Josh, you know what I mean? And he's going <laughs> to be your yes. fractional <laughs> CFO because he's been formally trained in the dark mm-hmm. arts of operations, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah. and, and you know, it's for, funny. For blood, sweat, and tears, actually. Yeah. Me too, too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you couldn't have gotten where you are now without the real world experience too. I'm not 
Yeah, definitely. That had to happen. But there is a very, you know, when I talk to, you know, I have a fractional CFO. Or when Mm -hmm. I talk to my accounting firm. Or when I even talk to my ex-partner. It's like there is a gap that happens when you get to a certain level in entrepreneurship if you don't have the formal education. And it happens whenever you apply for a loan. It happens whenever you go to sell your business. You know what I'm saying? Like there's these these uh, metrics, as you said earlier, that you have to meet. And if you're not meeting them, you're going to have a, a struggle in acquiring more money, acquiring uh uh, operational partners that can expand your business or acquiring a buyer for your business. Yep. And if you don't understand how that all works together, then you got to either outsource it, you have to get educated, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I love that early on one, you know, you're, you know, our parents do the best they can with what they have. Right. Yeah. And uh, yours were, you were fortunate that they put you in that type of those type of rooms around a Mm -hmm. bunch of winners, you know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? And so um, you had that mentality going into college, and then you graduated college, and you had that to look back on. But, you know, you were surrounded by winners for most of your young career and education. So that right there is, you know, iron sharp iron, and you came out the gate swinging, you know. And so you got promoted quickly, and then you ended up going to uh, San Francisco to work for Oracle. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, so what was that experience like going from sales consulting to to Oracle? Yeah. Uh, well, it was the same. Um, it wasn't, I wouldn't call it cross-functional. I had gotten promoted in EMC. I was working in data security. Mm-hmm. So RSA, the security division of EMC. Um, and basically I got promoted in an outside uh, sales rep role. They were offering me X amount Oracle was growing. Uh-huh. Oracle poached me, doubled everything that I made, and moved me to San Francisco. Um, but what I what I learned there is like, and this is what my dad's CEO actually told me when I sat down with him before I moved into Oracle was, "Hey, congratulations! You just went into the Cobra Pit, and the King Cobras there eat everybody else. So you're either going to win or you're not." And you're up against the toughest competition you're ever going to face. And I was like, what (laughs) the (laughs) fuck? (laughs) All right. Well, now, so it was kind of like a challenge almost. But uh, for me, I was also, they were developing a brand new division called Emerging Markets, Mm -hmm. which focused on companies that were 50 million in revenue and below. And trust me, the only way that they actually noticed or figured that out was through Hoover's, which is full of shit because private companies don't issue out. They're like 10 K's. Right. So I would be, I would be flying. This is how I got introduced to Texas where I live now is I would be flying down here, sitting in boardrooms, actually mapping out data server farms with companies that were like a hundred million dollar companies, $200 million companies, you know, Rackspace was one of my clients. Yeah. Right. And like a lot of people know Rackspace, you know, from a SaaS model, if you know what SaaS is, mm-hmm. um, I'm not going to sit here and explain it to you. If you don't. <laughs> <laughs> Look it up. <laughs> but, um, you know, that made me grow up really fast, but it was also a shit ton of pressure. Like it's a shit ton. You got to perform like, mm-hmm. and that was that. And it, they knew their numbers and 
I actually used to have to sit there and write business cases all the time about my clients, about what were the problems that they were having? What were, what were the reasons we were giving pricing out? What were like everything? Like, so it, it was just continued to develop my skill around learning businesses, learning business problems, learning like really how technology works cross-functionally across everything in, a, in an operation mm-hmm. and how you can streamline stuff by utilizing it. And, and then you start talking about ROI and you're, you know, you're in these really high level conversations with C-suite people that, you know, I, I was sitting in boardrooms that, that guys had been in the industry longer than I had been alive. Right. And, you know, they're looking at me like, you know, who, who the fuck are you, dude? Like, mm-hmm. I, I think I'm like 24, 25 at the time actually. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, if I shave, I look like I'm 12. Like I didn't, I like, <laughs> there's no way I look like I belong in that room. <laughs> right. Um, but luckily too, I had a sales engineer that was with me that had 20 years experience and was ex- is very well versed in like the real techie side of stuff. Right. So I had to be a sponge as much as I could. Mm-hmm. And, and just, I learned how to ask the right questions to, you know, invoke like really kind of like thoughtful disagreement in these organizations of, all right, like, how are you going to do this? What are you going to do? What happens if you don't do these projects? You know, when, cause a lot of these companies can actually put money on the problems that they have, like what it's truly costing them. Yep. And I was like, okay. So then I started like learning how to figure that kind of stuff out, which has helped me in, you know, long-term mm-hmm. in every, every business venture that, that I've had and, and having sold my last company to now, you know, working with other companies to help them, you know, navigate this, you know, obviously these rocky roads that we have to go through as entrepreneurs, which, you know, if you do it alone, it really sucks. It's really hard. Oh yeah. hundred percent. I'm with you there. I had a, yeah. I had a partner for most of it, but he was a silent partner. You know what I'm saying? Gotcha. And when yeah. I called him, yeah. I called him, it was often, yeah, you gotta figure it out. <laughs> I'm like, Oh yeah. shit. You know, but yeah. No, I, I love that being 24 years old, being in these rooms around these, you know, incredibly knowledgeable business owners, soaking all that up, but at the same time, having to stand your ground and being able to use your resources to do that. And then, uh, you know, one of the biggest things that I've seen lately is, you know, obviously people project first and they, they're sizing you up, right? Mm. And right around the time that I bring out the data, is when they stop sizing me up and they're like, okay, Doug knows what he's talking about. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I yeah. think, I think that's a powerful tool for somebody that's very young. If you know your data and, and you can uh, highlight conversion points, opportunities for lost revenue and highlight um, opportunities for increased revenue through that data and actually show them the numbers and uh, the projections um, then all of a sudden they're listening. You know what I mean? And it doesn't matter how old you are. You know, it doesn't matter how much experience you have because the numbers don't lie. You know, yep. projections can lie, but if they're if they if you're losing money because of a conversion rate or a metric, that there is no lie there. You know, that's right. one of the, yeah. that's one of the things I want to dive into. Yeah, oh, I love the, that. I'll talk. I'll talk numbers <laughs> all day. <laughs> well. 
Yeah, I meant like on the the podcast moving forward because you know a lot of what I consult on is a sales program. Yeah, and I, and I think what people are missing when they look at their sales program is loss. They're they're missing those lost revenue metrics, which mm-hmm. is like you know cost per hire or mm-hmm. conversion rates from um, hired to fifth sale. You know these little data points that like hey if we beef up that experience in between then we can increase those conversion rates and we can decrease those losses and even mm-hmm. long-term increase the overall sales and revenue, you know? Yeah. So that's me. Your target, you're being more focused and targeted on like a, on an audience too, because you have more data, yeah. you know, who likes you and who, you know, who's responding. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think, you know, here, uh, I'll tell you a story really quickly about, you know, this is probably one of the most impactful conversations I've ever had. Um, in, in my life, in my career. And I'm very lucky. Uh, I was sitting, this is very early on in my career as a sales associate at, at uh, EMC. And Art Coviello, the CEO, used to come down on Friday nights. And I used to work West Coast hours. So I came in from 8 a.m. I would study from 8 to 11 on all the stuff that I could. And then 11 until like 9 p.m., I would make phone calls. And he would come down there and he would stand behind me sometimes and like, listen to my conversations. And one night he scared the shit out of me. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> like I turned around, I was like, well, man, like, Hey, and he's, he's standing there and he's like, Hey, that, you know, I was just listening in. That was a great conversation. You know, I just wanted to say, appreciate your work ethic. And you know, you even being here, your last one here, you know, mm-hmm. besides the janitor who's vacuuming over there. Right. right. And and so I'm having this conversation with them and you don't get very many opportunities with, with these types of people because they're always on the go. And I'm like, holy shit, like, what do I ask this guy? And for whatever reason, this popped into my head. And I said, I, I asked him, I said, Art, you know, why do you, why do you think you're, you are where you are today? And he said two reasons. One is because I've always hired smarter people than me and put them in the same room. Yeah. Two I've always known my superpower is that I can read financial statements and dissect them and know exactly what's going on in a business like that. And I was like, Oh, okay. Number like if, if a guy like that who sits on the board of a fortune 500 company, you know, like is telling me this, I am 100% like need to figure out like data financials and, and start digging into that stuff as much as I can, because, Hey, if that's the secret sauce, then that's what I got to do. Right. Right. And, and I'll, I'll never forget that because it really has served me so much in my career in being able to make, proper decisions, even though I've made, continue to make errors, like it's been easier as I, I've collected data to, you know, not screw it up again, mm-hmm. and continue to fail forward and improve, implement, like we talk about it, like implement, analyze, adjust, and then you evolve. And that's, that's your loop. That's kind of like your cycle. So that was really, really important for me to, to understand from someone who I highly respect and is in a position of running, you know, a multi, multi-billion dollar company. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. So. No, that, that was an impactful conversation. And, you know, when you look at the, the environments that we're in now, um, mm-hmm. hiring the right people and hiring people mm-hmm. that are smarter than you is pretty, pretty common conversation, you know? And uh, tr- I would even say trendy as far as on social media and stuff like that. But the second part of that 
isn't, and it really should be. Because when I look back at my biggest mistakes, they were all financial, you know. And it wasn't yeah. the decisions I was making I, and the intention I had. It was understanding, hey, if I do this and it doesn't work, I run out of money. You know what I mean? Right. And uh, the financial piece has always been a huge, a huge opportunity for growth in, in, in my career. And that's why I have a, a CFO, you know, mm-hmm. and he's a pain in my ass. And I'll tell him that to his face, (laughs) but that's what he's there for. You know what I'm saying? And when you think about, you know, yourself as a fractional COO, you know, Mm -hmm. and the things that are important to you, it makes perfect sense because, you know, a CEO is going to want to fly to the moon. You know what I mean? And there you are with your dad. like, Hey, it's going to take this long. We're going to need to have this much power behind us, this much fuel. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And uh, giving him basically the parameters of, okay, this is when you can execute on that, you know? Yeah. And so that's, that's massive. So let's, let's back out of that a little bit. And I think we'll get, we'll get back into it. But so you're, you're at Oracle. And mm-hmm. around this time is when you had your second near-death experience. And the, <laughs> the fact that it's the second means we have to talk about the first. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Traumatic, traumatic experiences for sure. For me, um, you know, there's certain pivot points in your life, uh, you know, that you have a mental Rolodex in that are traumatic for you. Uh, one of which was my first surgery. Uh, and that was when my appendix burst, I had been misdiagnosed with the flu when I was 14 years old. Uh, three days later, they rushed me into emergency surgery I'm in a medically induced coma for six days because I get peritonitis, which you have a 20% chance to live. Mm -hmm. And like, I'm in like the most amount of pain I've ever been like ever been in at that point in my entire life. And I was scared. Like, I didn't know, I didn't know if I was going to live. I was going to die. Like my, my parents are both scientists. So they're like, they're giving me all these facts, like, which is, like not a lot of empathy. <laughs> like there were just a lot of facts going on and I'm like, fuck, it's, man. It's you no know. surprise you're wired the way that you are. <laughs> like yeah, empathy. What yeah. is that? <laughs> uh, uh, so, so I'm, I'm going through this whole experience. Right. And I ended up in the hospital for 10 days. Um, but you know, what's really, it's like kind of, it's graphic, but it's, you know, a vision that I've always kept, which has always like screwed with me when I've had all these surgeries in my life. Um, because they kept my wound open and they, they packed my entire like abdomen with gauze Mm -hmm. and then they pulled it out of me like six days later. And like, I was watching it and it was like watching and feeling someone pulling your intestines out of you. Like that's, Yeah. That's exactly. I get like shivers even like thinking about it. <laughs> so but, Justin, Justin Shaner sent me a video uh, <laughs> a couple weeks ago. And I don't know if you know, but he, he recently had surgery very similar. And uh, yeah, so I, I know exactly what you're talking about right now because he sent me a video of it, it being done on himself. And it was just like, why did you send me this? <laughs> Why? <laughs> yeah, I did not. Yeah, that's that's one of those vision burners, right? It yeah. goes right into the back of your brain. Um, like that's all inside of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll hard pass on that next time if you don't mind, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, that that 
those types of experiences, I don't think that I was mature enough to really understand like what it was going to do to me long term. Mm-hmm. Um, but they burn into your subconscious mind. They actually like influence decisions, your your moods, your your reactions, the things that you do until you start becoming self-aware of what you're doing. You know, and that, um, you know, I, I think I I was I was afraid when I was 14. I was really afraid when I was 26. Like I thought I really thought I was going to die. Like I was like, if I live to 30 at this point, like I'm I'm going to be lucky. Because the second near death experience was I had two puncture wounds in my lower intestines. They actually think that I swallowed shards of a toothpick and a sandwich that I ate and poked two holes, perforations in my lower intestine, got peritonitis again. And I was like, you're fucking kidding me. Like, <laughs> I was another 10 days in the hospital. Mm-hmm. But I remember what, like, I get shivers when I talk about this stuff. Cause it's like, like I can go back into the, that space in my life. Um, but it's, I was, I was really afraid. I was really afraid I was going to die by the time I was 30. And I was like, if I don't do something that changes my life now, I'm, I'm going to die unhappy. (laughs) I'm going to die completely unfulfilled because to that point in my life, I had been chasing money and I've been chasing like, you know, like, yeah, success, which traditional success. Yeah. The the traditional success. Exactly. You know, because that's what, that's what everybody that I knew did. Right. Was they all went and worked for fortune 500 companies that I like, that was the staple go graduate from college Get a get a degree, get a degree, do really well in sports, and then go work for Fortune 500. And I I never wanted that. I always wanted freedom. I always had that entrepreneur thing in my back the back of my brain, and I always felt like an, another number in some of those in those organizations. And that was like like a reality check for me. That that second near death experience was like you're doing everything for somebody else. You're not doing it for yourself. Mm-hmm. So I ended up booking a one-way ticket to Bali and selling a whole bunch of my shit except for my Jeep and, and left. Wow. And I just, I went and got lost. Like my parents actually didn't hear from me for four, my family didn't hear from me for four months. And I was traveling, backpacking by myself the, when they did hear from me, it was because I got my wallet stolen on a remote island and I couldn't get off of it. It was like crazy. Uh-huh. Um, but I did. I needed to go get lost because I thought if if I and I wanted to have all these experiences and just experience what freedom really felt like. Like no, like I, I lived with practically nothing. I lived with sixty milliliter backpack full of everything that I that I owned. Mm-hmm. And another backpack that was stuffed full of like stuff for like clothing or my computer. And that was it. It was the best decision I ever made. Provided you with an insane amount of perspective, I can imagine, once you got back to the States. And, you know, I watched a few documentaries on minimalism. And it's one of those things that's in the back of my head, like, hey, you need to, to do this. You need to get rid of a lot of your shit because it's exactly that. It just, it, it 
obstructs the, your decision-making process with the decisions that really matter. And then by mm-hmm. the time you come across the decisions that really matter, you're fatigued. Your brain's tired. You know, and so instead of making a decision on what shade of shirt to wear that morning, you know what I mean? You're making yeah. decisions on, you know, what to do about your daughter's education, you know? Mm-hmm. And so uh, I can imagine it provided some serious perspective of what you really needed in your life. Yeah. I needed something much different, but I also... <laughs> I needed to to get clear with myself about the fact that like I, everybody's got their own demons, right? Like that, that, that was the point where I got the chance to, you know, forgive my dad for a lot of the stuff that happened when I was younger, forgive my mom for some traumatic shit that happened, right? Like forgive mm-hmm. myself for, the things that like I was holding on to from a regret perspective that I wasn't allowing myself to bounce back from. And, you know, you can call it mental illness, whatever. Like I have depression and anxiety that runs into my family, like alcoholism, all that Mm -hmm. stuff, you know, part of the reason why I don't drink. And, you know, it's, it's actually like a major reason uh, minus, you know, the example that was set when I was growing up and I needed to leave that behind in order for me to move forward in my life. Mm-hmm. and like that's just ball and chain kind of stuff and a lot of people i think they go through that um they don't make it and it's unfortunate because i have i actually have 0.01 tattooed on my wrist uh, you know i was suicidal i had a suicidal problem and when i was 21 i had like my life fell apart practically when my parents got divorced mm-hmm. And they had me take a 350 uh, question survey about all my genetics and all these things. Like I didn't understand genetic predisposition up until this point. Mm -hmm. And they said, based on my answers, I had a 0.01 chance of being where I was. I should be the 99.9% were either dead, homeless, or in prison. And I, like that hit me pretty hard. And I was like, uh, so I, I think when, when I looked at that and then I, I, I went back and I remember sitting on a beach looking at the stars while I, was, while, while I was in Malaysia and just being like, I'm, I'm letting all of this stuff go. If I want to really become who I want to become and, and which I've been doing and working on for the last decade now, you know, I, I had to release those ball and chain shit that was just holding me back from, you know, really becoming who I, what my true potential could be. And I got tired of living up to somebody else's expectations and not really figuring out what the fuck I wanted. Yeah. You're listening to this. Like if you can figure that out, like, I know it's a hard question to to ask yourself, but you need to figure out who you are first before you can figure out really what you want. You know, I would love to to research what why why we didn't go the unproductive route. So like when we talk about it now, and I talked about this on your podcast too, like yeah, we did some bad shit and we did some unproductive stuff, right? But 
why instead of filling those holes that we had, those uh, emotional scars from our childhood or traumas from our, our childhood, why we didn't fill them with drugs and alcohol and all the worst stuff? You know what I'm saying? Why do we fill it with, you know, um, success in sports and education and business and in life in general? You know, and so, so we turned it into competition, basically. It's like, for me, it was like, hey, I'm not going to be the, like the rest of my family. I'm going to make something of myself. I'm going to start a business, and I'm going to be wildly successful, and I'm going to be an impact on the world. I had this these thoughts at 16 years old. But why did I have those? And the guy next to me who was dealing with maybe less, a little less than I was, or the same thing, the guy next to me that had, you know, the same issues, abandonment issues, whatever the case is, why did he turn to drugs, or why did he turn to a, a victim lifestyle? Because I, I, I can't necessarily say it's like this, I don't know, maybe it's just the way God made us. <laughs> maybe we leave it at that, you know? <laughs> I, can tell, I can tell you, you know, my answer to that would be is mentors, is, is being lucky enough to have, you know, some, you mentioned God, God's going to put people in your life for a reason. I had my, my high school wrestling coach, was my very first mentor in eighth grade. And he uh, like helped me get through so much family shit that was happening and just was there for me. Mm-hmm. And had that not happened, I don't, I know that I wouldn't be here today. That makes a lot of sense. And that's, like you said, right. The impact that you start to realize that you can make on the world when you're, you know, when you're moving through your life, well, it's a lot of it comes from the fact that, you know, we're paying it forward mm-hmm. and, you know, we've had all these great people in our lives. You know, if we're lucky enough to have that, uh, that we eventually kind of adopt that servant mentality of, Hey, how can I help you? You know, and even within business, that's, the most successful businesses and the most successful leaders out there are all adopt that same mentality. And I think it comes from having those types of examples when you're younger, whether those are teachers or whether they're your Mm -hmm. coaches or, you know, whatever, but it's also, you know, for, from, I believe a parent perspective, I've got limited parenting experience. Okay. So I dated somebody who had a you know, 13 year old or that, you know, for four years. So yeah. when we graduated high school, I was, so I got that part of it. So I was like, all right, this That's is interesting. Right? Kind of, some of the toughest kind of parenting. Because yeah. You judge for every word you say to them. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And they're watching you. Yeah. Every step of the way. But it's important to put your kids in a a space where they have an opportunity to see like a third party objective, like point of view on stuff, because they're the closer you are to your family, you're you're not going to tell them everything like you Mm -hmm. need somebody that you are like like you can go to to talk to about, you know, the, the things that you're going through, because if you try and do it on your own, it becomes incredibly difficult because you you'll fail and you won't have a feedback loop in your life that helps you continually evolve. So if get that's, that's a gift that my parents gave me is, you know, they put me in schools that were good and, and, and I took advantage of the leaders that were in those schools 
that saw me as, you know, somebody that had potential, mm-hmm. but was just in a really rough spot. I mean, like Jay knew that I was in a really rough spot. He didn't even know that, it, like, he didn't even need to ask me. Like, it was just the way that my body language and my attitude was when I was in eighth grade because I was just tired of getting beat up all the time. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. You know, I'm sitting here racking my brain like an idiot about who <laughs> my mentor was in high school and those years I should have been in college, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm like, my aunt, <laughs> you know what I mean? Because <laughs> I moved in with her when I was 12, and she taught me how to be like a productive member of society, you know? Yeah. So she had her own house, you know, her own finances, everything. She was independent. You know what I mean? So she, she taught me how to function as a human. So she was my first, like, person that paid it forward. And she didn't have to. I wasn't her son. You know, I was family. Yeah. But at the same time, it was like she could have very easily left me in the situation I was in. And maybe I would have turned to worse things at that point. But yeah. she, I always call her my guardian angel. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because of, you know, the outlet she gave me and then eventual home that she gave me for high school and everything. So... Yeah, I think once you get through those pretty selfish years of your early 20s, when you turn that corner, it's innately in you. Hey, I got to pay this forward. Like I made it out. You know, I'm a productive member of society now, too, you know, and so I need to uh, to pay it forward for sure. And I think uh, I think these last five or six years have been a good representation of that for me. But uh, okay, so. You got stranded on a remote island. You called your parents. Um, you lived at the Everest base camp for a while, or you stayed at uh, base camp at Everest for a while. What was that? I mean, besides cold. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, yeah, no. So I, I was, that was kind of like my spiritual journey for okay. me was spending a month in Nepal. Um, and I was on the tail end of me backpacking before I moved to Australia um, mm-hmm. and then like really got back to work. Uh, but Everest was on my list of things to do because on my bucket list before I left, I said I wanted to see all the nat- seven natural wonders of the world before I die. So mm-hmm. um, in that part of the world, I booked a flight from Bangkok to Kathmandu and I ended up going meeting up with a Sherpa because by the way, don't ever fucking hike that mountain without a guide. Like that's mm-hmm. the dumbest thing you could ever do. Yeah. Um, and luckily enough, I had gotten in contact with a guy through some of my network uh, who had done base camp before. Mm-hmm. And he walked me through the process of, Hey, this is, this is the guy you should go talk to. He like runs, you know, 40 different Sherpas He'll, you know, go meet with him in Kathmandu and, you know, he'll hook you up, right? Well, this dude's like missing three fingers, okay? First of all, like he had summited Everest twice. Mm. He had attempted eight times. I'm like, like this guy's like an animal. Like they, I got incredible amount of respect for every Sherpa that's up there because that is the most dangerous place in the world. Mm. Um, But hiking that not being conditioned was an absolute mental fuck on me. Mm. Like it was, it, it created, it created an experience for me where 
I got the opportunity to break through a lot of mental barriers that I never knew I had, I had by pushing my body to an extreme limit. Like when you get up to those types of elevations and I did it, I did that in 10 days. Normally that hike takes 14. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like it was seven days up and then three days back. And when we got up to like Everest base camp, there's another peak that's like right to like the West of it. And it's called Kalpatar. And you wake up at, we had to wake up at two 30 in the morning or three o'clock in the morning, something like that. And hike up that peak, which is at 50% oxygen. And my body was like, I do not want to do this after six days of hiking your ass up, up the mountain, sleeping in negative 10 degree weather in all of your, all of your stuff, carrying like 70 pounds of weight with you, like, which gets heavier as you go higher. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like shit, oxygen. dude. Your yeah. Muscles get less oxygen. oxygen. Yeah, exactly. So, um, my body started kind of like shutting down and, and it was the first time in my life. I've only experienced twi- twice now, but it was the first time in my life where I have been able to literally tap into my subconscious and flip the script on this, like my cells being like from complete exhaustion to like on fire mode, like let's go. Mm-hmm. And I knew at that point that my, no matter how hard I could push my body, there was still more left into it. I could still get more out of it. And I mean, once that happened, once, once that flip happened, I mean, I like practically ran up the rest of that mountain in order to get to the top to watch sunrise come over Everest, which I'll never forget that. That was an incredible, incredible experience. But it's also incredibly humbling because you see so much as you travel up through those different towns and through, you know, and learn about the culture and really sit down and talk with people from Nepal and like all over the world. Mm-hmm. Like I, I got to meet some, meet some people who ended up summiting that year. Um, and it was just a really incredible experience because not just from, you know, the physical part, but spiritually for me, it, it really humbled me in the way that I knew that when I went back to first world countries, I was always going to remember the shacks that I was walking by in the middle of these valleys, like looking at four donkeys and a brick brick wall. Yet these people are completely happy. They are so happy. I they they're so grateful and like welcoming and warming. Uh, that that to me was something that I noticed throughout my travels in some of the poorest countries that I visited. I saw people who were so content with what they had. And it, and they didn't need anything more than an emaciated cow sitting out in the front of their yard with a rice field and six kids. And it's like, damn. And I, you know, I drive, I drive a nice car. I've made, you know, six figures since I came out of college, like pretty much. And I'm like, dude, and I, 
I'm sitting here like bitching about my life. Like this would be really hard for to live in. And that that helped humble me a lot because it, you know, you like you talked about earlier, you have your ego and we had we had like through your twenties and you're still figuring yourself out. And kind of why I said like you need to figure yourself out first before you're we're gonna figure out what you really want. Yeah. You know, your ego is your biggest enemy of all time. Couldn't agree more. Breaks everything in your life. Mm-hmm. But and if it, you can figure out how to regulate it with your super ego, then then you're going to start figuring out where you want to go in your life and what your values are and your morals. Mm-hmm. And it sucks because the world rewards you, especially early on because you're not paying attention. The world rewards you for that ego. And, you know, if you're smarter than the average bear, you're going to know it. You know what I'm saying? And then, you know, especially in, like we talked about in my 20s, the world really rewarded me for my ego. And I was able to expand my business based on the smarts and the ego, you know. And so it's like it's it's the world tells you the wrong things a lot of times unless you go out and seek the right ones, which in your case you did. And so that's an amazing. I do think that you need that bravado, though. I think like you had mentioned, like every entrepreneur, everybody that you and I are around, like we all have a bravado to us. Right. But it's controlled Mm -hmm. and it's regulated. Yeah, we know when to turn it off and on. Yeah, and and how to like, and then it turns into influence, right? Like, how do you actually like, like influence others? But you got to like lead yourself first. Mm -hmm. And you know, uh, I was thinking about this even before we got on here. But if you think about mindset and growth, it's all around your emotional intelligence. It's not like you can read a lot of books, right? But Mm -hmm. um, you're until you get control of your emotions, you will never get to your full potential. And that's like your self self awareness, your self regulation and understanding your motivation. Right. But really like your moods, right. What do your moods do to everybody else around you? Because to get to the level of success that you and I have gotten to, like you can't get there alone. You have to be able to lead people and they look up to you. And if you're not setting the right example, you know, it's, it's not, it's not do as I, or what, yeah. what's that saying? Like, like do, do as, as I, say, I say, not as I do. Right. Yeah. Something like that. You know, a lot of entrepreneurs get caught up in that. And if you can figure out how to temper your ego off the bat and figure out how to serve your people by asking the right questions, you're going to win. And you're going to win a lot faster and make a lot less mistakes than I'm sure that you and I did you <laughs> yeah. know, when we first started. <laughs> Gosh, I wish I could listen to a podcast like this when I was 21. <laughs> Dude. Well, let's hope that... Uh, that you, you know what, it's though? It's be on here forever. Yeah. Everything lives on the internet forever, so there we yeah. go. <laughs> well, and that's the thing, too. It's like, I say that, and, uh, you know, I probably wouldn't have listened. <laughs> probably would have turned it off after the first five minutes. Like these guys aren't talking about crushing making goals money, and Lamborghini. making money. And, what? Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Rushing you know, models. What? This yeah, is cool. Lifted, lifted trucks for me. Oh, lifted trucks. Okay. <laughs> lifted Got Jeeps it. for you. <laughs> yep. There we so, go. So how did you not just fall in love with this way of living at this point and never come back? You know, I guess what, what finally brought you back to the States? 
being a nomad is amazing in all of its rights, but it's drifting in a lot of ways too, mm-hmm. right? And I went out there with a purpose of like no time frame, come back when I was ready. And I was ready. Like I could feel it like in my heart when I was like, okay, I'm done. I And I have friends that have done it for two, three, four, five years, but they end up coming back, mm-hmm. right? Because I think that a place in, in me, it will always be here. Will always be in America. Like I identify, I identify myself as a proud American. Like, and I love my, I love my country. I, I think I feel like I'm so freaking fortunate that I one got to be born in America because, yeah. trust me, if you were born in some of these other countries that I that I've seen, they they have much less of a chance than we ever did, right? Yeah. And you know, I I wish. And that was kind of like the urge for me, Um, even though I I spent a year in Australia, like Mm -hmm. and running sales and marketing teams, kind of, you know, doing the door to door thing and doing event sales and stuff like that. Um, You know, I just I wanted to come home and and I just felt that I felt it was time. I was like, all right, cool. Like I did my two years. I feel good. Now I want to go back. And and a lot of that feeling came from. I have so much more potential than what I'm living up to right now. If I don't go and and go back home where I know that that is going to flourish, like I was doing myself a disservice at that point. Yeah. You're, you would eventually be out of alignment, Yeah, you know, and you would just be, Oh, well, this is a better way of living. And it, it would just be an excuse at that point. Cause you know, you're a high performing individual you belong in high performing environments, you know? <laughs> yeah. I want, I mean, that's what I want. Right. And that's, I want to be surrounded by people that that are pushing for more. And that's made a massive impact on my life. Mm-hmm. So we're at an hour. Um, I want to respect your time, but at the same time, there's still a lot. I know we have to talk about, so <laughs> I can always break this into two episodes if I need to. So if you've got a buffer, I've got a buffer. I've got, I think my next call is in like 15 minutes. Um, Yeah, I've got a call in 15, so I got 15. Okay. I'll ask you uh, one more question, and then we can wrap it up after that. Um, So let's kind of talk COO, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of where your zone of genius is at. Um, Where do you find the most opportunities that businesses have in front of them when you're looking at their business from a COO perspective? Like, where do you, you know, if, if you get a new client right now and they're like, Hey, I need a fractional CFO first day of the business. What are you going to first? Uh, I always like to call it benchmarking. So I benchmark with them. I, I have like a systematic approach that I work with, work through them with um, that allows me to kind of get a temperature gauge on where they are both in the business, on the different elements of the business, uh, where, they're at, where they are within their leadership capabilities, where they are within their financial intelligence capabilities, and then where they are with their family life, mm-hmm. right? Because if, I mean, reverse engineering that, your, if your family life is not on point, like your business is not going to be on point. So it, it becomes that type of struggle where newer, 
newer clients kind of come in being like, yeah, we're going to like go make a shit ton of money right now. And we're like, yeah, cool. But we got to fix your culture and we got to fix you first, unfortunately, because a lot when clients sometimes or oftentimes I would say come in, they have not ever had somebody talk to them about, Hey, you've got to lead yourself first. And how are you leading yourself right now? Because that's going to tell me a lot about what's going on within the organization about the culture and how the motivated their teams are. So I, I don't, I don't want to say like, well, actually I'll use a quote from a friend of mine, um, <laughs> Sam, where he's like, what is all this rainbows and butterflies bullshit that you just gave me? And I'm like, look, just do it. And I and promise. And I promise you, if you trust in the process, like we will refine this and we'll keep going, but you like step-by-step, step, like, like try not to run before you crawl. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and six months later, he was like, bro, because I focused on all the rainbows and butterflies bullshit. Like now my business actually runs without me being there for three weeks. Mm-hmm. And it's not on fire. And there have been no fires, no emails, no phone calls, no nothing. I'm like, well, yeah, but now you're going to run into bigger problems as you scale. Yeah. So, <laughs> so on, on to the next one. <laughs> yeah. And then maintaining. I'm glad you're happy now, yeah. <laughs> but we need to look six months in the future. <laughs> yeah. And then maintaining the rainbows and butterflies as you scale, which is, I found one of the hardest parts for sure. Yeah. But it's it funny because, like, I know what you're talking about, and most of the people listening to the show know what you're talking about. But what what Josh is talking about, if you don't know, is the culture of your business, yeah. and and making sure you're pouring into your people, and then establishing a culture of how you want your business to operate. And in that case, I imagine it would be self sufficient, not making excuses. You know, those type of core values. You know, finding mm-hmm. the solution. And then, you know, before you bring me the problem, bring me two different solutions kind of thing. Um, that's really where the rainbows and butterflies stuff come from. Because when you first approach a business owner with that, and it, it's it's crazy because you expect to hear from a COO, like, oh, it's this conversion rate or this, you know, financial point or, you know, this cost opportunity, um, opportunity cost. But no, it and, it and it's the same thing when I go into a sales program, the first thing I'm looking at is culture. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, we're, we're going to work on the sales program, but we're going to work it on it with the culture in mind. So let's get this culture established, what we want, and then we can cater the sales program to that culture. It, yeah. it really is the, the foundation for everything. Mm-hmm. And what you hear probably on half the podcast you and I listen to, you know, it well, it's not- interesting because I just came back from an on-site uh, consulting uh, trip in Chicago, and that's exactly what we did is we sat down with them and, you know, rainbows and butterflies means, you know, one, you need to, you need to know where you're going, like what, like what your legacy wants to be, begin with your end in mind, and then your 10-year goals, but then you need to sit down with your team and you need to actually engage with them about what do they want? Mm -hmm. And uh, I oftentimes start there because I do get a lot of people who still think that their people work for a paycheck and they don't. And I can't stress this enough. If you build the right culture, they will make a fuck ton of money because they're happy. Mm -hmm. 
if you can create the fulfillment and the happiness like within that organization, but they have to be a part of the decision making of what that culture looks like. Yeah. Right. Who are the people that they want to work with? What are the qualities of people that they want to work with? What are the core like even a lot of times I have owners go back in there and I go, hey, you guys got a bunch of core values on the wall. Is this really what your company lives by and stands by? Because if it's not, let's have a meeting about what do you guys think this company stands stands for and stands by. Yeah. And then what ends up happening is they all buy in. And then and then that all that shit that you hear about, oh, I can't get people to work for me, blah, blah, <laughs> not. Like you can't get people to work for you because you're a bad fucking leader. Yeah. All right. And you don't know how to lead yourself. It starts with you. So and and, and again, it comes back to that that ego thing is if when you learn how to temper your ego with your values which uh, really is that super ego if you you know sigmund freud labeled it out id ego super ego mm-hmm. right and you go through these stages in your in your life right um but if you get your values correct and you engage your team in doing that guess what it's no longer a top-down approach it's hey guys you guys came up with these core values by the way um, together. So it's your peers that are holding you accountable just as much as they're holding me accountable to living up to these mm-hmm. as a CEO and no one's above them. It's like your 10 commandments. Yeah. And the, the ownership that is created in that, and then the responsibility they all feel because they created those values is yeah. it can move mountains in the beginning, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, you know, as long as the, creation process is real, you know, and it's not just them throwing shit out and the CEO or the owner or, you know, mm-hmm. yourself as the consultant accepting it, you know, that, yeah. that was one of the, the hardest things I had to figure out was how, okay, just having met me the day before, how do I sit these guys down and get them to be honest with me? Mm-hmm. And the, the best way I found to do that is to be honest with them, you know, right away, get vulnerable with them, give them a piece of me so they understand, hey, I'm willing to get get vulnerable with you, so you do it with me too, and then we can create this culture that everybody wants, you know. Yep. And then there's a yep. real driving force behind it, not just money or success or title, right? No. Yeah. yeah. Nobody's really well. We some people are motivated by success and significance, but at the end of the day, you know, if if you're leading people, you got to understand people and what do people need? They have six basic human needs. Tony Robbins talks about it, right? Is the certainty, uncertainty, um, significance, love, contribution, and growth. And if you put all six of those together, everybody's got some, everybody has, right? Mm -hmm. It's just, they might lean towards one or the other. And you got to figure out as their leader, like how, how do you become that person that draws that out of them? Mm It's by asking the right types of questions, but not just doing it once. You got to continually do it and put them on a, a like a like a progress plan where they're seeing personal development while they're doing professional development. You know that is the that's the game these days. Like you can't fuck around and go to, go to somebody and tell tell them go take a test so I can give you a dollar raise. They're never going to stay. Right. They're like, yo, you don't care about me. Like that's not why I'm here. Yeah. Right. So you have to learn how to identify the right types of questions to draw out what do they really want? 
And sometimes you need to be the, their mentor to help them figure out who they really are. Because if you got a 21 year old or 22 year old, if you're in a construction company, lots of guys have younger people working for them, right? Mm-hmm. You know, they don't know what they want. They just they they look at it and they're like, I'll, I don't want to live the way that I'm living now. Let's just say that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I want so a little I more gas that? in the tank, some groceries in the fridge, and take my girl out for a steak every now and then. You know? <laughs> yeah. Right. That's the, so. You know and. I always say that, that people get into this business and, you know, I'm talking about door-to-door sales, right? Mm-hmm. People get sure. into this business for two reasons. The first is compensation. The second is opportunity. The second is the most important. Yep. But what I'm realizing now is, you know, and over the last couple of years I've instituted this is, you know, the last is freedom, you know, and uh, exactly what you're talking about. You can develop them professionally. And that's great, and they need that, and they have to have that to execute the position, but you have to develop them as human beings, too. They have to see growth in their personal and their professional life. And it's one of the hardest things to do because everybody is still trying to separate the two, you know, mm-hmm. which is a Fortune 500 philosophy. It's not really an entrepreneur or a small business philosophy. So, Yeah. I mean, where do you think those Fortune 500 companies started? They started exactly, exa- most of them in the back of a garage. That's where I started my first business. I mean, I was like, shit, you know, it's like, but that you're 100% accurate in that, that they need to trust you. That's the, that's the thing that leaders miss is, yeah, I want to be respected. That's like when you first come in as a leader, mm-hmm. A lot of like young, immature leaders will come in and be like, I want to be respected. I don't necessarily care about being liked, but I want to be respected, right? Well, really what you need is you need to be trusted. You have like that is that's the core foundation of every relationship you're ever going to have, right? But how do you get people to trust you is by actually showing interest in the fact that you give a shit about who they are and not just write it down on a piece of paper. Go take actionable steps they game plan out what you're going to do to help them get to where they want to go. And if you do that as a business owner or as a leader of any department in any organization, your team will perform on average 20% better in profitability. If you don't do it and you have shitty emotional intelligence and you have you don't know your people well, you are going to do 20% worse than the average. So which one do you want to be? And we're going to finish with that. That was perfect. <laughs> right on. Amen. Amen is all I'm going to say. Josh, I appreciate you so much for coming on the show. I want to make sure you get your next call on time, brother. Um, Thank you. You know, we'll include how you can reach out to Josh in the show notes, whether you need your backyard designed or you need a fractional COO or you need a, a buddy to play a little lacrosse with. I know you're coaching now too. One-armed so that's right awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one armed right now. <laughs> hey, but you'll figure it out. I know you will. Yep. Yes, I will. Yep. yep. Uh, I'm, I'm so grateful for you for coming on the show, brother. And, uh, we'll, uh, we'll get this out to as many ears as possible because it needs to be heard, especially the last part. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity, man. So God bless you, man. And I will see you, I hope, very soon. Very soon. Absolutely. Let's get building. All right. Later. (laughs) 
Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Building Great Sales Teams. Be sure to execute on what you just heard and let's get building. As always, remember to subscribe and leave a review wherever you consume podcasts. You can also head on over to buildinggreatsalesteams.com and sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date with everything that's going on with the podcast. See you next time.